Okay, good morning, everyone. We should be getting started very shortly. If we don't go live automatically, then we will force it because it is now 10 a.m. Um, and it looks like things are connecting very well. So again, good morning to everyone who is experiencing morning right now. I know that there are some folks who it might be uh, evening and good evening in that case. Uh, welcome uh, or welcome back to Rabbi Silver's class on Genesis. Those of you who are joining us here on Zoom, I will be sending you an invitation to join as a panelist. Again, that does not obligate you to do anything, but it lets you into the room so that you can show us your face, like all the lovely people who are doing so here already. Thank you so much. We appreciate it a great deal. And it also enables you to mute and unmute yourself more easily during times for discussion. We do ask that if it is not a time for discussion, please do keep yourself muted. Background noise happens. And you are always welcome to use the chat here on Zoom to type in questions or comments, uh, especially if you don't know if we might forget. <laughs> we might forget by the time we get to uh, a discussion period. So it's good to have some notes there as we move along through the text. Uh, we will be working in Genesis, so feel free to reach for your most beloved Tanakh. Otherwise, I will do my best to keep us up to date with the text on screen. If you're joining us on Facebook Live, good morning to you as well. Please feel free to put your comments right below the video. And if there are any questions, we can bring them over here and communicate in a little bit more uh, <laughs> distant way. But we definitely do appreciate your participation as well. And if you're joining us on Drisha Live, good morning. Thank you for being here and learning with us. And without further ado, Rabbi Silver, please. Thank you. Okay, so we're up to middle of chapter 33. Yaakov has met Esav, and um, he Esav asks, who are, what, what are these, he calls it the Machaneh, the camp that I met, referring to the gifts that Yaakov had sent. And Yaakov says, these are for you to find favor in your eyes. Esav says, I don't need it. He says, my brother, he says, I have plenty. Yeshri Rav, why don't you keep it for yourself? And Yaakov insists on giving it to Esau. Uh, this is what we get up to last week. And this is found in chapter 33. Um, and Yaakov's response is in the 10th and 11th Sukim of chapter 33. He says, <laughs> So this confrontation, Yaakov finally meets Esau, and Yaakov is insisting that Esau accept what he calls a mincha. Uh, Esau had referred to it as a machane, camp, and Yaakov, just same letters, but Yaakov calls it a mincha. Mincha means a gift, but in the Torah, it can mean a gift, and sometimes it can mean a sacrificial gift. In the book of Breshit, it appears later when Yaakov sends a mincha to the viceroy of Egypt, Yosef, he doesn't know it's Yosef, to, to appease him. So it's to appease him, to find favor, and to rescue his son who's been taken captive, etc. And uh, that's the mincha that Yaakov sends. But the word mincha later in the Torah often, often carries with a sacrificial sense. And over here, the word mincha is linked in the middle of the verse with the word, the last word in the verse, which is vatshitseni. 
in Vaitutseni, Ratzon, in biblical Hebrew, in the Torah certainly, typically refers to sacrifice. Ritzono tizbachu. So in, in our, of course, in our prayers, in the prayer we call Ritzay, which is the last section of the Amida. Ritzay Hashem Elokeinu, Piyam Chayesu Ritzfilatam. And when God be accepting of our, your people and our prayers. And then it continues, restore the sacrificial service and the sacrifices and prayers should be Luratzon. So over here in this verse, the word Mincha, which is of course, Machaneb, switching the letters around, the Mincha that Yaakov sends, coupled with Vatsutseni suggests a kind of offering to Esau. And furthermore, not only that, but the very idea of seeing your face, seeing your face as Yaakov is like seeing God's face. That carries with it multiple meanings. Of course, it links us to the previous episode where Jacob wrestles with the angel. And Jacob says, after the struggle, I have, um, he names the place Pniel, the face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face. And I have been saved. And actually, one can understand, so clearly there's a reference to that, what Yaakov was saying to us or to himself, not to himself, but the text in reporting Yaakov's statement, say, making a statement to us about Yaakov, that Yaakov, from a certain perspective, sees himself as believes he will escape from this encounter uh, safe. One might even say victorious, or he will prevail in the encounter, just as he prevailed in the encounter with God. He was wounded, yes, but he prevailed. But um, Let me just say parenthetically and related to that verse that I have seen God face to face, but can be read in two different ways. The simplest way to read it, I think, is very simply, despite the fact that I have seen God face to face, I have survived. Seeing God is in the Bible dangerous. We have um, other examples where someone says or thinks they're going to die because they encountered the divine. And we know there were stories. Nadav and Avihu got too close without the appropriate sacrifice and they are, and they are killed, they die. Same thing is in the land of Egypt. God passes through Egypt on that night. Those that have the sacrifice as a buffer or as a proxy, or as a substitute, survive. Those that don't have the sacrificial buffer do not survive. It's the, the encounter is dangerous. That's one way to read the verse and the plain meaning of the verse. And Yaakov alludes to that. One might say, if I can survive the divine encounter, I will certainly survive this encounter. That's on one level. I would say that additionally, one can read that verse as Kivot Elohim Batvatsutseni, one might read it slightly differently, and that is. I've seen God face to face and I have survived can also mean, and that's what allows me to survive. Words, it's, the, it's actually the divine encounter for Yaakov that enables Yaakov to move forward. It's, it's, it's Dafka, that struggle, that meeting up with this uh, messenger of God and the encounter with that messenger that enables Yaakov to move forward, enables Yaakov to become Israel. Somehow on that mysterious night, that's what happens. That's two different ways to read that verse. There's certainly truth to both of them. The first way is probably the simple meaning of it. But over here, Yaakov is alluding to that encounter. But the point is 
point I wanted to emphasize is that in the Torah, the idea of encountering God to see God or to be seen by God, that is what the Torah mentions uh, several times later in the Chumash in terms of the festivals. Three times a year, there's the pilgrimage. And the idea is, you are to be seen by God, perhaps to see God. And in point of fact, the story of the Akedah, the place is named Hashem Yireh, the place that God's, where God sees, which is known today as the place where God is seen. So the idea of this seeing and being, seeing and being seen, encountering God is a religious event that transforms the individual, that strengthens the individual's connection and allows the individual to move forward. One might even see it as related to another theme of all the festivals, which is atonement. All the festivals have an atonement theme, not just Yom Kippur, all of them, every one. The only holy day which does not have an atonement theme is the Shabbat. But every festival has atonement as a core theme of the festival, as reflected in the verses in the Torah, the sacrifices, and in the liturgy. Not our topic now. But over, so my point over here is, coming back to this verse, what Yaakov is saying in effect is, I want you to accept the sacrifice because in accepting my mincha, I'm able to, to, uh, to, to transform myself into someone worthy of blessing. In point of fact, the blessing is appropriate for Yaakov and not for Asa. But in point of fact, he took it in a devious manner took advantage of his brother and his blind father. So that has to be atoned for. So that's about Tertzani. He really wants Esau to, to accept the gift so he can move forward. And that's the point of it. It's like encountering the divine, which allows us to move forward. It's what allows Yaakov to be transformed. And then Yaakov in the next verse, in verse number 11, it's interesting, this mincha, the machaneh became a mincha in verse number 10. In verse number 11, the mincha becomes bracha. Please take my blessing that I give to you. The word bracha in the context of Yaakov and Esau is a charged word, obviously. And there we another play on chen, on mincha, on Chanani. Please accept my blessing. I give you a blessing because God has been gracious to me because I have kol. Esav says, yes, we rather have a lot. And Yaakov says, I have everything. And the point of that is, not that Esav is greedy and Yaakov is not greedy. That's not the point. The point is that from Yaakov's perspective, and I think from the Torah's perspective, the blessing that he has is actually cold. Is all that matters. Because he has the covenantal blessing. And that's what matters. And that's the blessing that is infinite value. And that's the blessing that requires a very significant payment in order to achieve it. So I have everything. I have the covenantal blessing, but we know the nature of that blessing is that there are times when Yaakov will, when Israel will be in charge, and there are other times, three generations of suffering, etc. And the blessing is not for now. The blessing is in the future. So Yaakov says, Yaakov says, as of right, as of this moment, the blessing is yours because. I'm not yet at the stage where the realization of the blessing is not for now. So in this moment, says Yaakov, and this is the entire speech of Yaakov from beginning to end, he refers to himself constantly as an Evet. He bows down. Exactly the blessing that Yisroch gave Yaakov, 
right? The bowing down and the blessing. They were, Yitzchok said to Esau, oh, what can I give you? I, his brothers, I made for him Avadim. But in the whole story over here, Yaakov calls himself an Abed. Yaakov calls Esau the Adon. So Yaakov is saying, in effect, please accept my mincha. Please accept my sacrificial atonement in order that I, because I don't need any of this stuff anyway, because for me, it's not about now. For me, it's about the future. For me, it's the covenant. And your blessing is now. It's appropriate for you now. So take the bracha. He switches from mincha, machane to mincha, and this the very charge with a bracha. And now we have the last three words of verse number Verse number 11, means he urged him to take it. And Esav takes it. So here the question can be raised, means Esav was, was refusing to take, the, to, to, to take the mincha. And now the question is, how do you read those three words? He insisted, he urged him, he insisted, and he took it. Which means initially he wasn't going to take it. And the, the reader, that's us, ask the question, what do we make of Esau's not wanting to take it? There are two possibilities here. One is simply, he looks at Yaakov's flocks or whatever, and he says to himself, what do I need another 200 and 300, 400 animals for? I got 500,000 animals and I got a whole country and I got an army that marches with me. What do I need his little flock? Let him keep it the pathetic brother of mine, let him keep it. That's one possibility. It's coming from a place of generosity. One can read the whole Aesop story that way. He meets him after 20 years, he hugs him, he kisses him, they cry. And he says, brother, uh, how, we'll see. He's gonna say, how, how can I help you out? That's one way to read it. There's another way to read it. That that the refusal to take it initially is because, or what it signifies is, Aesop's unwillingness to, to actually forgive him. That's a different possibility. In point of fact, you can read it either way. But let me just say the way I think it plays out later in the, in the Bible. One can easily read the story here as Asa being basically a decent guy. He was a brother who was hurt. That was 20 years ago. He's done very well for himself. He doesn't care about the covenantal blessing anyway. It's not for him. So what does he want his poor brother? He has Rahmanus on his poor brother. That's certainly one way to read the whole story. But later on in the Torah, later on in the Tanakh, Esau becomes something else. Esau becomes the people of Edom, the king of Edom. And above all, there's a piece of Esau that becomes Amalek. Amalek is Esau's grandchild. And basically, um, Amalek is, I would, say, I would say Amalek is the piece of Esau that doesn't forgive Yaakov. That's, that, that, that's Amalek. And you can read in these three words, a hesitancy, a suspicion, a hesitancy, and an initial refusal to accept it. And it's interesting about Amalek, by the way, that Amalek later in the Torah, I mean, Amalek comes in, in different forms, but one of the forms that Amalek comes in is a specifically anti-Jewish, anti-Jacob Amalek. This is the Amalek that hates the whole world. That's also true of the snake. But there's the Amalek who attacks Israel and attacks Israel in the weakest point. That's Amalek. Always attacks you with the weak point, which is what Yaakov did from, from Amalek's perspective. What did Yaakov did? Esau came back from the field. 
Behuayef, he was tired. And then Malach attacks you, you read this coming Shabbat, when you were tired and weary. And Amalekh attacks you in the rear, and Nechshalim, the stragglers. So Amalek, actually, I would say Amalek does not believe that Yaakov has changed. One might say Amalek doesn't believe in the ability of people to change. That's the Amalek. And here in these three words, one can read that into Esau, that Esau has some hesitations about taking it, not because of the goodness of his heart, but because he's saying to himself, you know, I don't really buy it. I mean, I know what he did 20 years ago. It's true that he doesn't actually care about the substance of the blessing. It's not for him. But the fact that the other guy took it from him bothers him, which is human nature. So here we have in those three words, that, uh, that possibility, I think, which certainly plays out later in the Torah. Hopefully someday we get there. But not only with Amalek, it plays out with Edom as well. The story of Edom in the book of Bamidbar is directly playing off in language and theme, the confrontation of Esau and Yaakov. Okay, I'll take, I'll stop in one moment. I want to add one point first, and then I'll take comments and questions. Then we'll finish the chapter and start with the story of Dina. The, um, there is another story in the Bible, which um, plays off the, the story of the, the meaning of, it's probably more than one, but there's one I'm thinking of now, which plays off the story of, of Yaakov and Esau's confrontation. And it's in my, uh, it's in the new book that, uh, that uh, just came out, which is in Hebrew. So it's only for those that can read Hebrew. The book has some extremely interesting readings among other things. So I'm very happy with the book. Um, so in the book of Shmuel, the book is called uh, Machut Adam, Human Kingship. And um, it's about human kingship as seen through the prism of the book of Shmuel. So in the, in, this, in the book of Shmuel, the great book of Shmuel, there's a very interesting chapter. There are many, but the one I'm referring to is the story of David and, and, uh, and, and Naval, which is chapter 25 of 1 Samuel. Chapter, I'm not gonna go through the whole story now, but in chapter 25 of Shmuel Aleph, the story is that uh, Shmuel dies, and there's a man in this chapter whose name is Naval. Naval is a, not a very nice name. Naval is a disgust, means disgusting person. Uh, and of course, the, the, the chapter plays off the name Naval in multiple ways. That's not a problem right now. In short, at the, in, in this point, so it takes a few minutes. At this point, David is on the run from King Saul. He's a renegade. He's the most wanted criminal. And he has with him his group of followers who are basically also desperate men, criminals, wanted. And David is, you know, public enemy number one is David. And Shaul is spending most of his time, almost all his time, searching for David and trying to catch him and, and, to, and to kill him. That's what he does. He hasn't really fought any wars. He's busy chasing after David with his, with his, with his soldiers. So meanwhile, David's running away. And the story is about a man named Naval. Naval is a very, very wealthy man. His wife is named Abigail. Abigail. The wife, we're told, is intelligent and beautiful, but Naval was a calabite, a hard man, tough man, and and what and um, Ramalim, an evildoer. Okay, fine. The story in short, which is not our topic, can't get into it. David is in the wilderness, running away, and he hears that Naval is shearing the sheep. 
That means, shearing the sheep means that at the end of the year, you reap the profits. It's the time when you make your money, like you get your big bonuses at the end of the year. And Naval is an extremely wealthy person. So he has a lot of sheep to shear. And in other places in the Bible, we've encountered in the book of Breshit, it's a time where you really, the money's flowing in. Money's flowing in. So David sends his, 10 of his, um, his boys, it says, his young men, to Naval to greet him with a very beautiful greeting. Ko to life. Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to all that is yours. He says, I hear you're shearing your sheep. Let me tell you something, he says. All this time that you are you are men who are working in the fields, shearing the sheep, taking care of the cattle, we were protecting you. I mean, we can't get into fully into the story here. I, I, I'm not going to get into this now. We were protecting you. And nothing was missing. And if you don't believe me, he says, you can ask your men. We were protecting you. Protection of the people is actually the job of the king. But King Saul, is, the implication is Saul wasn't protecting you. I've been protecting you. And now, I know you had a good year. <clears throat> Made a lot of money this year. It was a good year. The stock market was up. And we need money. Right? David has people to take care of. So, you know, it would be nice if you gave a generous contribution to the people who have been helping you all along, whether you know it or not, or whether you care to find out or not. So David sends the young men, they go to Naval, and in short, Naval refuses to give David anything. He says, who is this guy anyway? Nowadays, there were so many slaves who are, he didn't try to say run away, that's wrong, who, 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 who warn over, not running away. Slaves mid partsim is mid parades is to is to blow up, but it's often to is to assert your own significance. So it's not clear the slave is David, but who is he? Who is David? This is this uppity slave. He says now who uppity against whom? Is it Saul possibly, or is it Naval possibly? But in short, Naval says, why should I give the all the all the good all the hard work we've done? Give it to people I don't know who they are. What do you want? Like, what do you want? I'm not paying you this protection money. Story is very interesting because we can see Naval's position. I mean, he's a bad guy, but he's you know, he want they want protection money. And the further point is that the last guy who supported David against he wasn't really supporting David against Saul, but it could be seen that way was the priest of priest of Nob, and he ended up getting killed with all his priests. So it's not a great idea to back David against Saul. But in short, he refuses and he insults David on top of it. And they go back and they tell David what happened. But David had sent his message of peace. And fine, now, it's, now we continue the story. Next verses, David said to his men, put on your swords. And each one put on his sword. And David put on his sword, three times the word sword. And how many men does David take with him? 400 men. David at this point has 600 men. But he initially has 400. Those are the David diehards. He takes 400 men, 200 stay behind. So David's the other person in the Bible who has 400 men. One of them, the first one, of course, is Asaph, who has 400 men. And now David has 400 men. They have something else in common. They're both red. They're ruddy complexion, right? Asaph, Asaph is Edom. Edom is red. David is an Admoni. 
David is, is red. Doesn't mean he has red hair, he's a red, red complexion, okay? Which is interesting. So part of it is the redness can be seen in a variety of ways in the Book of Shmuel, but one idea of redness, the redness of Esau, you live by your sword. Esau lives by the sword. Esau's a killer, Blood, a bloody man, we would say. So is David. So meanwhile, David has sent this beautiful message and David now is upset that Naval did not give his men, his 10 men, uh, any provisions. He had insulted them, no less. So meanwhile, one of Naval's workers on his big plantation, this is a huge plantation, speaks to, to Naval's wife. Her name is Abigail, Abigail. And he tells her the story. He says, you know, David sent these people and, and, and Naval insulted them, just keep, just keep scrolling down. He insulted them and they've been very good to us. It's all true. They didn't harm us. They didn't take anything with us. They protected us in verse number 16. They were a wall about us. It's true. He didn't make it up. So listen, he says, he says to, that to the wife, you know, you better do something. Harm threatens our master and his household. He's a nasty man. Your husband is a very nasty man. No one can speak to him. So you better, he says to Mrs. Novel, Abigail, see what you can do for us, please, because we're in trouble here. Let's keep, keep going. Let's scroll down, right. So she gathers all kinds of provisions and she puts them on the animals, the pack animals. And she says, go ahead. But she doesn't tell her husband. So she's going to give David what he wants. The husband doesn't know, doesn't tell the husband. Keep going down, scroll down. Fine. She's riding, she's riding, right? The Seite Rahar, in the, I'm going to translate trail. Seite means the, the secret place of the mountain. And David appears. And here we have the confrontation of David and Abigail. What is the, one of the many great stories in the book of Shmuel? Uh, and here she, ha she has to convince. David, because David is setting out with 400 men not to kill Novel. That's not his intention. His intention is to kill everybody, at least all the men. He makes this clear. He intends to kill everybody. Not nice, but that's what he's going to do. He is a killer. And David was saying to himself, it was for nothing that I protected this guy. He paid me back evil for good. This is a very interesting verse in the book of Shmuel. What I pointed out is that usually in the book of Shmuel, the writer never tells us what, da what David is thinking. He's what the uh, author called an opaque character. We don't know what he's thinking. We know what he does, but it's very hard to figure out what motivates him. This is an exception to the rule. He says, you know, I, was, I protected this guy. I thought I'd get something back for it, but he gave me nothing. He repaid good for evil. He says, in next verse, he makes it clear. I swear by the light of morning, not a single male of his will be alive. I'm gonna kill them all. That's David's intention, to massacre the entire plantation, to kill all the men. That's what this fellow, one of the workers was afraid of. He better catch David because your husband's a hopeless case, but you, Abigail, you're a smart lady, you'll figure out, do something. So let's keep going, keep reading. She sees David, she throws herself down to the ground, and she bows down to the ground. So the first thing is bows down. She says to him the following. It's a, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this. It's a, it's a great speech. She says to David, it's my fault. 
Let my servant, let your maid, maidservant, handmaid speak to you. Please hear the cry of your maidservant. So she refers to herself as a slave. She's a slave, right? I'm, I'm a techa. She bows down to the ground. That's on one hand. I'm a nobody. And then she says something else, which seems to contradict it. It's all my fault. She says, pay no attention to the wretched fellow Naval. That's her husband. He's what his name says. His name means, he says, he translates boot, boor. His name means boor, and he is a boor. I know my husband. I know exactly what he is. He's what his name is. He's a Naval. But I didn't see the men that came. It's my fault. I, your servant, did not see the men who came. So the first point is, he was something very interesting. What do you mean it's her fault? How is it her fault? It's only her fault if she has the capability to actually make a deal. So what she's saying is, let me take, here's, let me translate what she says. You spoke to the wrong person. You spoke to the lemon, this jerk. I know him very well. We've been married for 30 years. I know the guy well. He's, a, he's what his name is. He's an oval. You went to the wrong person. You should have come to me. I'm the one that makes deals here. Yes, your lowly slave, slave girl, slave girl, slave girl bows down. So two things at the same time. I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody, I'm a nobody. But I have all the power to make the deal. This is the Abigail. It's the two sides of it. Fine. Now let's keep reading some more. Yeah. Please, she says, I, now I swear, she says, by the God, the God who has kept you from seeking redress by blood with your own hands. She says something else over here. I swear by the God who wants to protect you. It wants to prevent you from doing something very, very stupid, which is bad for you to kill innocent people. That's bad for you. That's not going to work well for you. Let God handle Naval, but not you. You shouldn't do that. And surely shouldn't kill all the people. Keep going down. Now, this verse, this whole longing. Now, and now she says, take the present. And what is, what, how would she describe the present? Bracha. So the writer of the book of Shmuel, it's exactly the story of Yaakov and Esav, but here David is Esav. David is the Esav with his 400 men, with the Cherev. He's a killer. And you have to placate the killer. And what's interesting is, and you placate the killer by giving gifts. That's the story. And the gifts, of course, the writer of Shmuel, who's so attuned to the language, suddenly switches from the gift, becomes a bracha, the bracha. So among, it's much more complex than that. But my point is, the, this Yaakov, I'm simply demonstrating one thing. How the Yaakov and Esau story within the Bible itself, forget about the, the rabbinic tradition, dealing with the Romans and all that, leave that out. Within the Bible itself, you have this confrontation of Yaakov and Esau being replayed by this incredibly clever person, this Abigail, who uses every trick in the trade to convince David not to do something which is injurious to her workers, but also injurious to David. That's the argument. It's not in your best interest. And the gift, which is a gift, is also a bracha. And then we have these two sides of Abigail. On one hand, I am an, I'm a slave, I'm a slave, I'm a slave, I'm a shifcha, etc. On the other hand, 
I'm the one in charge. I'm the one who makes the deals. Next verse is also that way. Please forgive the sin, forgive the sin of your amatecha, pardon your maidservant's sin. Forget the JPS translation. This is it's not translation. It's maybe an interpretation. Son of a pesha, pesha does not mean boldness. Pesha means sin. Forgive my sin, right? Because God is going to make you great. God's going to build you a house because you fight the wars of God. Translation, interpretation. You fight the wars of God. This is not a war of God. This is your own personal little vendetta for whatever reason to take vengeance because my husband wouldn't pay you protection money. That's not, that's not right. right. You're a righteous person. You're going to be successful because of your righteousness. Therefore, don't do this thing, which would be bad for you, etc. Now, there's much more to it here. I had, this whole thing was to make one simple point, and those more interested can look at the story of David and Abigail and see within it the various connections to the story of Yaakov and Esau. What I find extremely interesting is not just that the Yaakov Esau becomes a paradigm, but actually in this particular story and elsewhere in the book of Shmuel, Shmuel uses many such paradigms, many such allusions, many such intertexts. But in this particular one, the Esav is actually David. The 400 men with the Cherev, right? Out to slaughter, with exactly what Yaakov was afraid of. He'll kill me and everything that I have. Eimah bonim, women with the children. Now over here, it's only the men he's going to kill. He's not going to kill the women. And there's something else in the story that I'm not going to get into now, which the Talmud already picked up on, which is... She meets him in the darkness, in the, in the stealth of the mountain. And there's a romantic element here as well, or a seductive element as well. And let's not forget that after Abigail goes home and informs her husband after he's been drinking, after the hangover, that I've given away a whole bunch of your property, he goes into cardiac arrest. And 10 days later, he dies. And when he's dead, David sends messengers to Abigail to pick her up. Her bags are ready or packed. She says at the end, remember me. Her bags are packed. And the last verse of the story is a wonderful verse. And she says to David, I, I have come here but, but to wash the feet of your, well, we keep going down to the last verse, sums her up very nicely. Keep going. It says, keep going, keep going. At the very end, yeah, we'll stop there for a second. Yeah, yes, that's it, the next verse. She says, David has sent us to, to, to take you. She says, So she says, your maidservant will be your shifcha. Shifcha is even lower than an amma. And I want to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Okay. That's how she sees herself. Nothing is lower. I'm not just a slave. I'm the lowest slave who's going to wash the feet of my Lord's servants. That's, and the last verse, the next verse, back to my hair. So she rose quickly and she got up and she trapped, mounted an ass with the five attending women who traveled with her. And she followed David's messengers and she became a wife. Yes, she's going to wash the feet of the servants of David's slaves. When she travels, she has a whole retinue accompanying her, including five of her own narod. It's wonderful. The book is so wonderful. You have this combination of I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, but made a big mistake. You didn't go to the one person who has all the power. That, that's the Abigail story. Anyway, 
Another example, I mean, Book of Shmuel is filled with this. These incredible, incredible stories. Each one of them is more amazing than the next, but it's how it uses our story. The gift becomes a bracha and it's for your benefit and it's going to work. So what she's figuring out is the best way to approach David. You got to speak to him. You got to talk to his good side. You got to make the point that this would be bad for you. It's also not right. God's on your side. You don't want God not to be on your side, etc. And there's always me. I'm very bright and I'm a good looking woman. There's always me too. When this is over, we'll figure out a way to get together. She is married to Novel at the time. Yeah, but he's no good. He's what his name is. He's a boor. He always was. That's the story. Anyway, let's get back. Let me stop here for a moment. Let's, any comments or questions about this, our little story in chapter 33? Or in the chat for that matter. Yes, speak up. Um, yeah, and I have Julia. a question. Yeah. We we um we talked about Yaakov makes amends with Esau. That was you know, this is part of what's going on is that Yaakov is making amends with Esau so that he can become Israel, so he can be worthy because of all the things we've said. But is it bothersome that we never see him make amends to his father? Because he deceived his father as well. And doesn't he need to do that also to make it whole? Well, I think he has to act in a way which is not deceptive. That is true. Um, there's not a sense, though, that, I mean, after all the deception, which is chapter 27, Yisla calls him in in chapter 28, and there he knows it's Yaakov, and there he actually explicitly gives him the covenantal blessing. So it would appear that, for whatever reason, Yisla doesn't seem terribly upset. In other words, the, there are two issues here. One is the, the mode of behavior, which is problematic. And the second is that you've hurt somebody else. I never had a sense in the Chumash that Yitzchak is hurt, actually. I have a sense that Yitzchak comes to understand that maybe Yaakov acted in a deceptive way, but that actually the blessing which he's getting is the appropriate one. Because he he's come to understand through his wife's intervention that Esau, who's married to Canaanite women, is actually inappropriate for Abraham's blessing. So I don't think it's about mollifying Yitzchak. Yitzchak seems to be quite mollified in chapter 28. It's a separate question. How does one, how does one behave in this world? That's a, that's a good question. You know, how does one act in this world? But I don't see whether Asaph's angry. Asaph says, I'm gonna kill him. Asaph's very hurt and he cries, Asaph cries. Uh, Yitzchak is not hurt. He never says Yitzchak is hurt. He says, he, your brother tricked you. He came in stealth, he tricked you. But later on, he comes to understand, I think, that, okay, he acted inappropriately. He's acted like uh, a good Lavan character would act. His but wife Yaakov is Lavan's doesn't sister. admit that he acted. What? But Yaakov doesn't, doesn't admit to his father that he acted inappropriately. That never seems to occur. Right. His father knows it. Father said it, actually. I don't think that... The Chumash doesn't tell us all the stories. The Chumash right. is focused on certain things. It doesn't seem to be, he does go back to Yisroch in chapter 35. And he does, if you want to say, in chapter 46, he, when he leaves the land, he brings sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac, which is very striking. So he also swore by Yisroch earlier to Laban. So there is a, a relationship there that's very important. But I'm just saying that I don't ever have a sense. And my understanding is that Yisroch was hurt by, by this. He's not hurt. He thinks he acted, initially acted wrongly. And I think he comes to understand 
that he may have acted wrongly, and maybe the end don't always justify the means, but the blessing that he gives him explicitly is to Yaakov, knowing it's Yaakov, right? He, he gives him the blessing. Birkat Abraham is in chapter 28, afterwards. Anybody else for a comment? Aviva, you want to I say something? Go ahead. I have a question. Yeah, here we go. Um, in line 11, um, the use of the word birchati, kachna et birchati, and etc. So that struck me that the sin that Yaakov committed against Esau was that he stole the bracha. So another a way that I wonder if you can read it that, you know, I got the blessing that you that I took from you. Now I'm giving you the blessing kiyeshli hakol, and. And if I were Esau, that would not appease me. I mean, I don't know. I mean, that the word bracha is directly related to what happened 20 years ago. It's related in terms of, look, here's, here's, here's what I would say about Yaakov and Esau. Yaakov assumes that Esau is going to kill him. Well, or that Esau might kill him. He assumes he's very angry. The truth of the matter is when you read the story, it's not clear he's angry at all. I mean, the simple reading of the story is he's not angry. Why didn't uh, Rivka send a message to Yaakov to come back? Maybe Rivka died. We don't know why. But in the story, one can read it very well that he's not angry, though. He's about to offer help to Yaakov. Because the, at the end of the day, my point is that the blessing that Yaakov has, really has from Yitzchak, which is the, as Yitzchak formulated in chapter 28, the covenantal blessing involves suffering three generations and only the fourth generation possesses the land. So in point of fact, what it's about is the covenantal blessing is you suffer in order to create the possibility for others. That's how the Torah presents it. And Esau is not interested in that. He makes it clear. Esau lives for the moment. Who cares about the future? I'm, I'm, I'm hungry now. That's Esau's personality. So whereas Yaakov assumes, Yaakov assumes that this blessing is worth everything for Yaakov, its ultimate value. And he assumed that it might have ultimate value for Esau, but, the, but we can say what emerges from this text is for Esau, it has no value. It's worth exactly a bowl of soup. It's not a blessing he wants actually. What's ang what makes him angry could be that someone else took it. Someone could be worth nothing to me, but if you steal it from me, I'm still angry at you. Well, Even that's it's not worth I mean. anything. If instead of the word bracha, let's say when they were both sons of this father, that he stole his toy or his coat or was something else. And he's now saying, I'm giving you the object that I stole from you. From that point of view, does that have any significance? I don't no, mean the, the word significance. bracha is a loaded word here. It's all about the bracha. The whole, the whole, the whole story revolves around the bracha. The, my point is, the formulation that I'm suggesting now, maybe in the future we'll have different formulations. What I'm suggesting is when Esau goes to his father and says, father, give me a bracha also. He says, I gave him everything. What can I give you? Esau cries, give me something, give me something. And Yitzchak's answer is, there's only one bracha to give out, which at that point in time, he understands a certain way. Later he understands differently. But his point is, there's one bracha. But sometimes, and he's going to be the superior one, and you're going to be the servant, but there will be times where it's reversed. There'll be times when you can throw the yoke off yourself. 
which is what the oracle told Re Rebecca when she first goes out to seek advice. What's going on with me? And my point is that what Yaakov is doing over here is saying to Esau, this is your time. This is your time. This is the time where you are the Adon, I'm the Ebed, I bow down to you. I accept that. It's a shared blessing. At this point in time, it's yours, it's not mine. That's, that's my point about the bracha. He's, he's, he's saying to him, I, I, I accept the fact that you are at this moment superior to me. And then the, the, the text says to us, not to Yesav, but that's okay. Because from the way I see existence, it doesn't matter. Because in the ultimate sense, I have everything I, I want. I have the ultimate blessing, which is the covenantal blessing. Nothing else matters to me. What matters is this covenantal blessing. So I have everything. And I don't measure it in, in, in amounts. I have the covenantal blessing. That involves the suffering. I, I know that. And right now you are, the, you are the Lord and I accept it. And I also want to feel bad about what happened. So take my offering, my sacrificial offering, but it's also a bracha. And the bracha piece of it is to affirm that what the bracha that Ace of God is in fact Ace of legitimately. And my only point in jumping off to uh, Abigail's story, which we did not do, you know, we just touched upon it really, it's a very complicated story, is simply to demonstrate that the story of Yaakov meeting Esau already plays out in the, in the Bible in a different setting in an interesting way, where of course David is actually the Esau in the story. But, but the idea that Yaakov meeting Esau is a paradigm for the future within rabbinic traditions is, is, is quite clear. When they would go to Rome, they would study the story of, of Yaakov and how, did, how, did, how best to deal with, with the Romans who they saw as utterly wicked. What's the best way to deal with, with, the, with the wicked person? That's, that's the question, the wicked and, and dangerous people. What's the best way to deal with them? So what the world is asking itself today, what's the best way to deal with this monster who has a few screws loose? What's the best way? That, that's a very good question. So, you know, that's the shikulim, that, that's the conversation. You know, and that's when they would go to Rome, they would study this particular story. They saw it in an interesting story because they saw on one hand, Jacob is affirming his own rights to the ultimate blessing. But the same token, they saw it as dealing with a kind of reality. The Romans are in charge, you know. They're the ones with all the power, they're the ones in charge. How do you achieve your goals? Uh, and at the same time, you know, able to deal with, the, with, these, with these realities. That's, that's the question. Let me just continue a little more with this. Uh, just one, just briefly. Uh, also, um, just, I'm so sorry. I'm just waiting. In, well, all right. I'm sorry. Herbert Silverberg has had his hand up for a few minutes. Yeah. So, right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that when Yaakov sends the brothers back to Mitzrayim, he sends a mincha. He sends another. He sends these gifts. He's using the, the same methodology. I mentioned that earlier, Herb. I know that. I said the mincha is used in Genesis, not in sacrificial terms. That is true. But there it's not called the bracha. It's interesting. Called mincha. mincha. Yes. There he says the nechotz, the various uh, zimrata ares, it's the fancy stuff of the web. The, the same things that Joseph was sent down to Egypt with, which is also very interesting. I will get there, but you're 100% right. So the use of the mincha is a strategic, you're saying this is strategic on Jacob's part. Does the same thing later. And there you go, why, why finish this? Continue. What do you want to say beyond that? 
No, that's it. That's it. Oh, because I'm, I'm saying there you have also multiple, there you have the mincha, but you also have other things as well. He says he, he also prays. Right. etc. So there's right. a combination of, and you should speak to the person, and he sends back the money. So you have the same Jacob, which he's working on multiple fronts. You can't just have one thing. There is the gift, there's the return of the money, and there's the prayer, which is very similar to what you have over here with Asa. He prays to God, he sends the gifts, uh, he divides his people, etc. He's, he's trying the best way to do it. He, he, he's thinking strategically, you know, or tactically in both cases. And that's very true. When we get there, we'll have to go look at that story and we'll go back to this story and see what else we can mine from the, from the two stories, which as you point out, are very deeply related to each other. Thank you for that. Um, okay, two more people with Sandra, what is it? You're muted, yeah? I was, thank you. I was suggesting that um, you were saying that uh, the behavior of Jacob towards Esav is a paradigm for the future, and you gave the example of um, the bracha and the mincha of Avigail and David. And I was, and I, I was jumping a little bit from that uh, to um, Esther, if for it being a paradigm when you're approaching a dangerous uh, killer or dangerous situation, certainly a woman approaching a dangerous and powerful man, um, there's a formula that uh, Abigail lays out. It's almost a playbook. And uh, I would suggest that that's uh, Esther's playbook. Well, I, don't, I, I, first of all, I, I didn't suggest that this is a paradigm for the future. I said that the, the, the Talmud suggested that when they would go to Rome, they would study this parasha first. So yes. it makes total sense. Yeah, Esther also has a similar has, Esther has a similar situation in terms of how do you best deal with Ahasuerus, and she doesn't do what Mordechai says to do. Mordechai has a piece of advice, go beg the king for your people. That's exactly what Esther does not do, initially. She doesn't beg him for anything. She invites him to a party and a second party, because she knows, she knows her custom. Approaching Ahasuerus from a moral standpoint, it's not right, it's not ethical, we, we, we Jews aren't bad, that kind of thing. Wouldn't work. That doesn't work. That's not going to work. She doesn't even. She doesn't even approach him as a Jew initially. She approaches. So I have a question, then, Rabbi. I have a question. So the one other time that the person who's facing either death or rape um, appeals to the "don't do this thing," almost in exactly the same words, and it's also in the Navi, and it also has to do with David's progeny. It's Amnon and Tamar. When Tamar speaks up and, and she's at Amnon's mystery, he's got her literally by the throat, and she says, "Don't do this thing." And she appeals to what you call the moral. And it's actually a surprise right now. Of course, we, we know about the Amnon Tamar story, but reading this, knowing that, reading the Avigail story with David, I'm totally surprised that it works because he's got blood in his eye and 400 warriors champing at the bit. And other than her beauty, sort of a conflation of the Esther story and uh, an, uh, an inversion of the Tamar and Amnon story. And, you know, you have to be uh, literally surprised that David buys it. Well, David's not unknown. The point of the story is David's very complicated. David does have a moral side to him, obviously. Okay. He has okay. a very deep moral side to him. The problem with David is not that he doesn't have a moral side. He has one. The problem is he doesn't connect it to, us, to himself, typically. He sees <laughs> it. He's very good at seeing the other people's faults. He's not good, as we all are, not so good at seeing our own limitations. That's another story. Each story is different. Well, mm -hmm. Amnon and Tamar will get to soon because we're up, almost up to Dina and the Amnon and Tamar story is built on Dina. So we'll get there mm -hmm. very shortly. 
There are cases of people, you know, and each case is different because the characters are different. That's the beauty of it. Everybody's different. Um, okay, Shmuel, you want to say one short point? Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes, thank you. There's a, there's a third possibility in reading Asov, and I think that third possibility actually um, uh, comes forward by how Esau backs off because it has moment of power. He didn't have to back off. He could have insisted on keeping Jacob company, but he leaves it in Jacob's court to do what he says. To no, do we what we Jacob... haven't read those verses yet. We'll get there in one minute. Oh, I, I thought you were jumping to Shechem. No, 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 jumping. Okay, okay, okay. Then I'm out for that. Okay. Okay, let's finish, let's finish this first. So here we have, now we fine. So he, he accepts the gift. Let's start with that. He accepts the gift. And now we're up to verse number 12. Now Esau says, quite generously, let's start on our journey and let's go together. Actually, some of you, I was thinking about this last night. You know, you read the stories a hundred times. There's always something new. I thought it was interesting the expression with negdecha. Across, literally means across from you. The JPS translation very often is not an accurate translation. I'm sure we know that already. They sacrifice truth for beauty, and that's very unfortunate. When negdech was an interesting word, because remember back in the previous chapter, uh, the Torah says that Yaakov put everybody across, took everybody across, by Yivotel Yaakov Yivadol. Right? Jacob was left alone. And we remember the beginning of the Torah, what God said about um, being alone. So at the, in the Shia, I pointed out that Yaakov had said to God, you promised me three times he said, he said it's going to be tov, tov, tov. And then the Torah says, not only did God not answer, but he's in a state which the Torah said tov. But in the story of Breshit, and we know the story, Jacob wrestles, Jacob is alone, Jacob overcomes, and Jacob creates from himself uh, another, another, another person, a, a different kind of Jacob in Israel. Well, it's interesting, in the Chumash, though, when God says, God, having created this, sing, this single earthling, it's Adam, and God says, Lotov heyota Adam levado, and then the continuation of the verse is, I'll make him a helpmate, Kinegdo. And here the Chumash actually picks that up. Here the, what Esav is saying is, My brother who's limping along, it's not good for you to be alone. I'll be your Esav Kinegdo. Let's, let's be partners, says Esav, which comes from a, one can read it from a very generous place. He says he sees his poor brother, you know. He, he says to his, his brother, you know, Jacob, you're doing well. I'm doing very well. I have a million bucks. You got a million bucks? I have a 780 billion bucks, my little little brother, you know? So here's the point. Let's go together. I mean, I'm going to help you out. You come with me. I'll be your Ezer Kinegda. And Yaakov refuses. By Yomre Love, he says, Yaakov has an excuse. You know, that the children are very tender, frail and tender. And the flocks and herds are nursing. If I push them too hard, all the flocks will die. So he says, I can't, thank you so much. I keep, keep going. Next verse. 
let my Lord pass before the servant. Remember, passing over, we've seen that so many times. Why don't you go ahead, he says. You go ahead. I will travel at a slow pace. The pace of the cattle that are before me. And the pace of the children. The word regal was interesting. Jacob was injured in the foot. Until someday I meet up with you in, in Seir. So Yaakov has no intention of going to Seir. So people ask, he's not telling the truth. He's supposed to be honest. And of course, no, one should be honest, but not always. The Gemara understands very well. Kant didn't understand this. Kant thinks it's an absolute, you always tell the truth no matter what. But the Gemara didn't think so. Gemara says, it depends. He doesn't want to insult Esau. He doesn't want to say, listen, we are two radically different people. You have your blessing in the, in the here and now, my blessings for the future. So he doesn't say that. He gives an excuse. But the excuse itself is very interesting. Because the excuse, I think, has a very deep truth. Not that Asa hears it, but we hear it. And the excuse is very simple. What he's saying is, we travel at a different pace, which is so true. We travel at a different pace. You travel very quickly. You get what you want right away. I don't work that way. This is so true. My blessings are not today. I go very, very slowly. I go very slowly. One generation and two generations and three generations and this Gerut and this Abdut and this Inui. And I'm building for something in the future which is covenantal. And at the end of my life, I look back at my life and I'll say, my years were few and, and bad from an objective standpoint. But from another standpoint, they're full with the ultimate meaning because I have a covenantal blessing. So what he's saying is it is an excuse and he doesn't intend to ever meet with him. You, why don't you go ahead? I'll try to catch up with you. Of course, the Talmud comments that we will catch up someday with the prophecy of Ovadia. But the point here is, I don't think that he's lying over here. I think it's not true, but I wouldn't call it a lie. But there's also a truth to it. He's being, he's being gentle with Asa. He says, Asa, I can't, we don't move with this. I don't want to hold you back. You, you, you go ahead. If you travel with me, you'll, you'll never get there. I go very, very slowly. Why don't you go ahead? Why, why does the master go before the servant? And I'll go at my slow pace. Maybe someday I'll catch up with you. That's my take on it. I don't see that as an insult. And I don't think he has an option. He's not going to say to him, look, we're ready. Esau's being very generous. Esau's being kind. He wants to help him out. No, you go, you go ahead. I, I, I go slowly. I can't push it, he says. Let's, let's continue with a couple more verses, then I'll stop for a moment. Yeah. So Esau says something different. Okay, fine. I'll go ahead. But you know something? Let me leave some of my men with you to help you. Let me, let me leave some of my men. To which Yaakov answers, doesn't really have a good answer. My word is too kind. That's essentially is the correct translation. Why do I find, how do, why do I deserve such favor? It's a very sweet way of saying it's not necessary. And the fact of the matter is, this is the point that the Talmud picks up on, that Yaakov and Esav are radically different. It's what the prophet said, to, the oracle said to Rivka. They're two different people, with different ways of seeing the world. They move at different paces. They have no connection. When one is up, the other is down. There can't be a connection here. 
because they're just radically different and they have two different conceptions of the world. So what Yaakov, Yaakov's, Yaakov's challenge is on the one hand to affirm his own identity. Yaakov has become Israel and Esau can have no part of that. It doesn't mean you can't be friends from a distance. It doesn't mean you can't help each other out on occasion. That's certainly possible, but you can't be together. You can't ever, there's no shared destiny over here. That's what emerges from the Yaakov Esau story. There's no shared destiny. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. We can be brothers. Maybe we'll help each other out in the future. Depends on who the, who the players are. So, but we move in a different pace. Esav went along his path to see. And we have to remember something else about Esav, and then I'll stop and take comments and questions, which is Esav has chosen to leave the land. Ya- Yaakov has left temporarily from the land. He returns to the land. Jacob has not forsaken the land. He only forsook it. It wasn't his fault. He had to run away temporarily. Okay, he almost got stuck there. But he comes back. Esav has already living elsewhere. Esav is living in Seir. Esav is Kurokaderet Seir. Esav is Admoni. He lives in Edom and he lives in Seir. That's where he belongs. So there can't really be a connection between the two of them. They can be friendship, but they can't be, they, they don't share the same destiny. And that's Yaakov's, that's Yaakov's um, challenge, I would say. Yaakov's challenge is a challenge that on one hand, he doesn't want to insult Esau. He might even want to be friends with Esau. It's certainly possible, although he's fearful of Esau. He knows what Esau is capable of. And on the other hand, he wants to affirm his own identity. How do you do that without insulting the other person? A person who he once hurt in the past. He doesn't want to insult him. He wants a clean slate. And that is the challenge. That's what they were studying when they went to Rome. How do we achieve our goal? Our goal is our own identity, our own understanding of responsibility, our own moral compass. And the rabbis of the Talmud thought very little of Roman civilization, to put it mildly. They thought they were a bunch of barbarians with their circuses and their gladiator fights and all the other stuff. Thought they were a bunch of animals with all the civilization. That's what they thought of them. On the other hand, they're holding most of the cards. You have to deal with them. You can't, you can't ignore them. And there are even some good ones. If you can make friends. Rebbe had a friend. Antonius, their friend. Anthony, their friends. But at the end of the day, we want to affirm our own identity. So that's the, that's the challenge over here. And that's Yaakov and Asa. Becomes a story for the rabbinic tradition in terms of dealing with the Jews who have lived most of that time in exile. And uh, my point is it's even a paradigm within the Bible itself. Okay, let me stop here for a moment and take some comments or questions, and then we will continue. Another 15 minutes or so. Are there, no, are there any comments or questions in the chat or anything? The fact, the yes? fact that the, the fact the fact that Asaf doesn't insist would certainly seem to 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 indicate that he is not convinced that Yaakov has not changed and he's still mad at him. That's for sure. He doesn't insist that what? That he doesn't insist that 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 Jacob remain under his wing at the moment. Right. Under his, he lets him go his own way. That's right. Whether, he does, whether right. He, he leaves it in Jacob's court, whether Jacob will show up or won't show up. That's right. 
He certainly does. So he certainly is not in, in a state of enmity and, and, and adversity. Right. It doesn't sound like, I agree. It doesn't sound like, the, the, the point I think is, let me just pick up on a point over here. I just want to make, I've made this point before. I want to say it again. When you read the Chumash, okay, I would say the following is true of Asaph. When you read the story of Asaph, leaving Rashi and the apologetics and all that out of it, Asaph does not come across, he comes across fundamentally as one who has been wronged. And in the story over here, he comes across as somebody who doesn't seem very concerned about what happened 20 years ago. What, what, what the Midrashim, what Rashi in particular picks up on is two things. First of all, some of the language describing Esau, it doesn't do anything bad, but it's negative language. Vayibez et Vayibez is negative. He's the Yodeyat Sayed. The word Ayef is often negative in the Bible, et cetera, et cetera. So in other words, and he is a killer. And the blessing is you live by the sword. And the fact of the matter is, and he does threaten to kill his brother. So he's certainly capable of, of doing evil and doing harm, that's for sure. Having said all that, he comes across in this story, I think as a forgiving brother, for whatever reason, he doesn't really care about that blessing or whatever it is, and he tries to help out on top of it. But what the Midrashim are reading back into the story here, what they're reading back in is what Esau becomes. And Esau becomes in the Tanakh two different things. Number one is Amalek, which is the ultimate evil. And apart from Amalek is the king of Edom, who does try to block us. I mean, we're not doing that story now, but when you read studying the Book of Bamidbar, you realize that the story of Israel's journeys in the Book of Bamidbar are directly related to Yaakov's attempt to return to the land. And there, the king of Edom says, in no uncertain words, lo ta'avar be. You can't cross over. The word avar being a central word. So what Rashi and the Midrashim do very often is read back into a story. If so-and-so becomes something later, then the question is, was he always this way? Or has there been a transformation? That's the question. So what Rashi chooses to do, Rashi doesn't like Asaph, and Rashi may have been uh, influenced by the fact that the Asaph he sees is not just the Asaph of the Torah in chapter 32 or whatever, chapter 27, maybe his next door neighbor who, who murdered one of his grandchildren and tried to murder another one. Rabbeinu Tam's brother is murdered by the Crusaders and his, uh, and his brother uh, and Rabbi Tom himself was almost killed. So the, you know, so the point is, Jews are being killed right and left all around Rashi, right around that time. So Rashi understands that uh, Rashi's seeing, perhaps seeing these Esav in light of not just the Midrashim, not just the history, but in terms of his own personal experience. That's also a possibility. But I totally agree with you that when you read the text over here, he doesn't come across as a bad guy. And the attempt, I think, by some teachers uh, to read all this into the pshat, I think is problematic for two reasons. First of all, because, um, because uh, it doesn't seem to be the pshat to, to people who read it for the first time. It doesn't seem that that's actually accurate. The one who's devious is not Esau. The one who's devious is Yaakov. So I think it's problematic. I think it's not a good reading. And I think it's problematic because People who hear their teachers saying these kinds of things uh, say to themselves, maybe this isn't for me in the first place, because they're saying things that are simply untrue. And that's not what the, what the book says. The book doesn't say this. So I think it's problematic from those two perspectives. But I agree. When you read he's being a generous brother. He sees a younger, his brother, his twin or whatever, who's limping along, who has relative to Asa very little. 
He says, let me help you out. Okay, you want to travel with me? I got it. Let me help you out. I'll leave some men with you. Yaakov doesn't want that. He's afraid. He doesn't want any connection. So he says, no, I'm unworthy of your kindness, he says, basically. Actually, right, the, differ get... the differentiation of the, of the Edomites from the Moabites and the Ammonites in regard to the fallout of their not allowing the Bnei Yisrael through their land. Yes. I, I, want, I wonder that that actually is because in fact, Jacob didn't show up to Edom. And so, and so the king of Edom not letting the, the, the children of, uh, of Jacob through is, you know, is tit for tat. Maybe, possible, maybe. All right, is anybody else to comment here? We'll, otherwise we'll continue, we have a few more minutes. Let's just, uh, let's just finish the chapter then, okay? We'll I, just, the chapter uh, and, uh... I think that uh, the, the whole idea of him is so striking that he sees God in in Asa, but that I, I think you said it, but it, it crystallized for me that what he's vatirtseni is he realizes the bracha that Asa wants is not his bracha. The his bracha is the transformation to seeing God, and. Uh, and, he, and he, so, so he says, take it. Yeah. That's not what I wanted. I, I have a new bracha. Um, and that's the bracha of seeing God. Or, or, or uh, yeah, so. Yeah. Right. It's along the same lines, essentially, that. No, anyway, that's, his, that's his challenge. On one hand, on one hand he's, he's a, he, he is the covenantal one. That's his destiny. That's what he accepted. And he's, he was in the house of love and he, he saw that his gay with Abdul and Inu, he says as much. Uh, at the same token, he's willing to understand that other people have a different path. It's not my path. And that's their path. I mean, I remember at Minyan, one of my kids at the Barabat Mitzvah, I don't remember anymore, the leader Minyan gave a bracha. You should find your path, which allows other people to find their path. That's, that stuck with me, actually, and I believe that very deeply. Everybody's in a different place. Everybody has a different mission. No one knows the next guy's mission. And we're lucky we know our own mission, if we're lucky. So that's, that's what it comes down to. I think that's a very beautiful way to read it. You have your destiny. I have my destiny. And Asaph does not appear to be a bad guy in the story over here. Not at all. We know what he's capable of, that's for sure. Um, we know what David's capable of. There's a reason that the book of Shmuel sometimes chooses Asaph. The story that I presented to you, which I thought was very interesting. There's much more there, by the way. Um, you know, it's uh, there, the Shmuel book uses Asaph. David is the Asaph. It has to be placated, and it requires a very ingenious woman to figure out every trick in the trade what is it going to take to get David not to murder everybody on the plantation? And she offers, she says many different things to David, including offering herself to David in a kind of tryst, which the Gemara picked up on in spades, you know, the Seitirahar. She says, after all this is over, we're going to get together, which is, is what happens, by the way. So the point is, whether she's even complicit in Novel's death is a very good question. I discussed it in my book, in the Hebrew book, uh, new book that came out, Mahut Adam. But um, yeah, I think that's, uh, there's a reason they studied this particular story when they went to Rome. The story is very, very rich. 
it's a timeless story, but every situation is different. I mean, you can't compare, you know, uh, the Romans are one thing, Putin's another thing. They have a lot in common, but uh, every situation requires a lot of cleverness, ingenuity, and a deep understanding of what the options are. So I think that's, uh, yeah, I agree with you completely. Let me take a few minutes here. We have just three minutes. Let's start anyway. Let me I'll take um, I'll just the first verse. Next week, we'll continue from here, and we'll, we'll also start with the story of Dina. The first verse is, Yaakov is, Esau's gone. We don't hear of Esau in the narrative anymore. I mean, there's one chapter about Esau, but it's not about narratively. Let's start with the next verse. Vayavo Yaakov shalem irshchem. Asher b'yeretz kenan vuvo mipadan aram. We'll start with this verse next week. I want to make one simple comment. Jacob arrived, here they translate safe. The word shalem could be safe, whole. Shalem is whole. Jacob arrived whole, W-H-O-L-E, in the city of Shem, in the land of Canaan, when he came from Padan Aram, by Yichan, and he encamped before the city. So Shem is the point of entry, as we know, the place that Yaakov, that Avram goes to when he first enters Lechucha. Yaakov has crossed over into Canaan. That's the first verse. And the Torah said one more thing here. Actually, two more things. But the, what interests us right now is, the last word of today is, Vayavo Yaakov Shalem. The word Shalem is a very interesting word. He came whole. Because, among other things, and the word shalem will appear in the story of Dina as well. But we remember the covenantal promise. The fourth generation shall return to the land. For up to that point, the sin of the Amori is not yet complete. So they, shalem is a covenantal word. And next week we will begin the story of Dina. We'll have to finish this chapter first. Jacob in camps, Vayichan, another word. We had Chen, we had Machane, we have Hanani, we have Mincha, and now we have Vayichan. Esav has left, and Yaakov in camps before the city, and Yaakov will actually purchase a parcel of land. Vayichan and Chelkata Sadeh. He buys a parcel of land. So, this idea of possessing the land, what Yaakov is doing here is, is symbolically possessing the land when he arrives in Shechem. So it's an act of possession. What Yaakov is saying is, I've come back into the land. I am covenantal. I've been able to cross over. It required my transformation. I'm now Israel. And as Israel, I'm covenantal. And I'm going to purchase a piece of land, which represents symbolically that the land will someday be ours. Just as Avram purchased a piece of land, he purchased the, the field of Ephron and the grave of Sarah, which becomes the grave of all the Avot and Imahot. Here too, we have Yaakov laying claim on the land, not through an act of war, but through an act of purchase. And the Torah begins the section by saying, Yaakov So this, these verses, Yaakov coming Shalem to Shechem and possessing the land through acquisition is in sharp contrast to the next story that we'll get into next week, which is the story of Shechem and the war against Shechem and the destruction of Shechem, which the brothers perpetrate, led by Shimon and Levi. So we'll have to, in reading the story of Shimon and Levi, of course, we will have to take into account these psukim as well. Yaakov also wants to lay claim to the land, but he does it a different way. He doesn't do it through conquest. He does it through act to purchase. 
So that this is one of the themes we'll pick up next next time. Okay, I'll stop here. If there are any final comments or questions, we'll take them, and then I'll turn it over to Noah to say what we're doing uh, in the coming weeks. Prisha is chock full of interesting things in the coming weeks. Um, uh, anybody have any final comments or questions? Very quickly. Otherwise, you can send me emails. In my uh, email is dsilberitrisha.org. Noah, are you there? I am here. So first of all, thank you, Rabbi Silver, as always, for a tremendous class. And to everyone here on Zoom, on Facebook Live, and on Drisha Live for being part of our learning community. As Rabbi Silver said, we do have a lot coming up over the next couple of weeks. There is a link in the chat if you would like to take a look at different things we have going on. This week, we're going to have a short series of programming related to the Ukraine, 1 p.m. tomorrow, Tuesday, and Thursday. And uh, next Sunday, after this class, um, I think uh, also 1 p.m., or is it? 1 p.m. Uh, we will be having uh, a larger class. Uh, a discussion. One or 12 p.m., I have to check, it might be 12. I, I, think, it, I think it might be 12. Um, the data is correct on our website. So if you look at our website, the time there is reliable. Uh, but that will be our perm, pre-perm event. Uh, we'll have three scholars, including Rabbi Silver and also Dr. Sinkovich and Dr. Kotlieb talking about uh, the idea of diaspora in the Megillah and beyond. Um, I'm very excited for it and I hope to see you there. Uh, and of course, we have our ongoing classes. We have the annual Rappaport Memorial Lecture coming up. All of the information is available on our website. Please, please register as soon as you know you want to be there. Um, so we can get excited about numbers and uh, make sure that we have extra tech help if need be. It's going to be a mighty large group. And as always, if you have any other questions, you can get in touch with us. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again very soon, hopefully at another event this week. But if not, then next week. And please be well.